Talking History. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Aukteroin, Argus, Akoiza. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Kagan. In tonight's show, uncovering hidden text in the first official account of the reign of Queen Elizabeth I, including various plots and conspiracies against her life. We'll also be finding out about cosmetics in the Renaissance world, as well as changing ideals of beauty. And to end the show, we'll find out how it took a century for women artists to be recognised by the Royal Hibernian Academy in Ireland and the trailblazers who led the the way. You can email us your thoughts and views, talkinghistory at newstalk.com and we'd love to hear from you. Last week we explored the history of Belfast and we also discussed the future of Northern Ireland and if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to our website newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts. We begin tonight's show with the Camden Annals. Camden's Annals is one of the most valuable sources on early modern Britain and is considered to be the official contemporary account of Queen Elizabeth I's reign. Written in Latin, the text is based on first-hand evidence such as eyewitness reports and official parliamentary records collected by the historian William Camden. Often regarded as the most important source in shaping the image of Elizabeth I and her reign, modern historians have commonly relied on the Annals as an important partial and supposedly accurate record, but new research reveals that key sections of the annals were revised before publication. And to talk to us about the annals project, I'm delighted to be joined by Callum Coburn, the creator of Medieval Manuscripts at the British Library, their section's web content editor and a regular contributor to the British Library's Medieval Manuscripts blog. Callum, you're very welcome. Hi, Patrick. Thanks so much for having me on. Can you tell us about William Camden then and uh, these annals and the extent of this project? Yes, so William Camden was an English antiquarian and historian who lived during the 16th and early 17th century. And he's particularly known for two major works. One is is called Britannia and it's a survey of, of, of British Isles. And then the other is called the Annales or Annals. And it's this this uh, Latin work is um, the earliest full-scale historical account of the reign of Elizabeth I, which Camden was commissioned to write by her successor, James I. And as you said, it's a hugely significant source and a really detailed account. It contains information about all aspects of her reign. And it seems that Camden really consulted first-hand accounts and parliamentary records and uh, diplomatic and state papers. And he also includes a lot of uh, Elizabeth's own words in his narrative, words that aren't attested elsewhere in historical record or other sources. So his account has really shaped the way we view Elizabeth as a monarch and our image of the Elizabethan period itself. And what's fascinating is how new technology and new approaches are actually changing how we how we view these annals and it's allowing us to uncover uh, things that were hidden before now. Yes, exactly. So at the library, uh, we are very lucky to have uh, 10 volumes that contain the original manuscript drafts of Camden's work. Um, typically, Camden's work was known through the printed edition uh, that was published in two parts in 1615 and then in 1625, two years after his death. But the original draft hasn't been consulted as much. And so we began a project with a DPhil student, uh, Helena Rutkowska, who's working on our team, uh, who is essentially looking at these manuscript drafts and understanding the process by which Camden compiled and wrote his history. And one of the interesting things about these drafts is that they're, they're definitely indicative of, of a working draft. They're covered with erasures and crossings out and marginal notes and additions. But they also have these fascinating paper notes that have been pasted over portions of text that no one has been able to read for over 400 years since Camden wrote them. Um, 
And what we've been able to do at the library is using uh, transmitted light techniques, we've essentially been able to reveal the text below these paper notes and read them for the first time. And so what are these things then that are being uncovered? Because it's providing a new insight into even things about uh, how Queen Elizabeth was being presented, how uh, King, the future King James I, uh, James VI of Scotland, how he was being presented. Exactly. Um, so I should say that Helena's research is very much still in progress and we're really excited to see the full findings of when she completes her PhD. But her analysis of the images that we've completed so far, um, through that, Helena has been able to identify that key sections in Camden's annals were actually revised and edited before their publication, ostensibly to present a version of Elizabeth's reign that was more favourable to her successor, James. So if I can give one example, there's a section right at the end of Camden's annals uh, where he describes the scene of Elizabeth's deathbed and uh, her obituary. And at this point in Camden's narrative, the the printed narrative, uh, Elizabeth on her deathbed names as her successor James VI, the son of Mary, Queen of Scots, who Elizabeth famously executed. Um, Of course, Elizabeth never married and she died childless, so the, the question of the succession was really important. And what Helena's analysis of, 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 of the manuscript draft and the text that's been hidden is that in the earlier version of Camden's Annals, uh, there was no death scene. Camden seems to have actually added and fabricated this death scene and added it into the narrative. And we can sort of uh, speculate about why he might have wanted to do that. And presumably it was to appease James to... Uh, make it seem that his succession looked more predetermined and potentially more legitimate than it had actually been. The the truth was that Elizabeth was probably far too ill to speak in her final hours, and we have no other historical evidence or sources that, that point to any truth behind this deathbed uh, story. You know, which is remarkable then the way these things are able to be kind of uh, uh, adapted or changed or modified to suit the political interests of the people in power. And you see the yeah. same thing with the with the attempt to assassinate Elizabeth and the confession of Valentine Thomas. Yes, exactly. So uh, we have this really controversial account in 1598. There's this man who is apprehended in northern England. He's called, yeah, Valentine Thomas. And after he's apprehended, he can, confesses that King James had in, actually encouraged him to murder Queen Elizabeth. And that's some, something that obviously would have had consequences for Anglo-Scottish diplomacy at the time. Um, but what the newly studied passages reveal, that in the earlier draft, Camden actually intended to keep this episode and this, this information in the annals. But subsequently, he amended and softened the confession. So he has Thomas quoted as saying that, that, that Thomas had, had accused the King of Scots of having ill affection towards the Queen, but not that he explicitly encouraged him to, to murder her. Um, there's no real evidence that, that James ever plotted against Elizabeth, but presumably reading that, that account of, of, of such a plot, I think would have not been, he wouldn't have been well disposed to that. And also fascinating the way uh, reports and accounts of the death of King Philip II of Spain, that they were also amended so uh, that they were kind of uh, making it appear less gruesome and uh, leaving out some of the gory details. Yes, it seems certainly what what Helena seems to focus on on right now is thinking about allegations of bias and certainly the appearance of impartiality and neutrality. And so one section of the annals uh, covers the death of, of Elizabeth's arch-rival, King Philip II, again in 1598. And so Philip was, of course, the, 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 monarch, the Spanish monarch who had who'd authorised the Armada to sail to, to Britain uh, to, to, conquer, to conquer England. And what we find that is that the original text of, of Philip's death um, is much more... Uh, uh, much less impartial in its description of him. It's, it's quite condemning of him. And it also states that he had died of, of, of psoriasis, which was a really gruesome disease 
through which parasites actually multiplied in the body. But importantly, it was actually seen as a divine punishment from God. And so it seems as if Camden actually removed these phrases so as not to stain Philip's legacy and also to protect himself from any allegations of bias in his historical account. And what about some of the other elements that you've discovered? You know, that because, uh, again, you see it in terms of various plots against Elizabeth, including uh, that the Pope uh, uh, involved in some of these conspiracies. Yes. Yeah, so uh, uh, another key episode is in, in, in the year 1570, Elizabeth is actually excommunicated by uh, Pope Pius V. Um, and it appears that, that Camden had originally intended to paraphrase this whole episode before then changing his his mind and instead including the whole document of excommunication and removing his own commentary on why this had happened. But in his original description of the event, he essentially attributes the Pope's motives to a kind of spiritual warfare. And, also, and, and so he then covers that over and replaces that in the published version with this statement that that, that Pius was creating secret plots against Elizabeth. So essentially he was removing the sort of the previously inflammatory wording to again make that official record more neutral in its tone. And it is extraordinary because it's extraordinary the way all of these hidden secrets are now being uncovered and revealed uh, that people would have thought were, people wouldn't have been aware of them, but that they would have uh, they would have been lost for all time only for these new approaches. Yes, exactly. I think it, it, it's really exciting. I mean, we're, we're marking the, the 50th anniversary of, of the founding of, of the British Library. And of course, we really see our roles here as, as custodians of the past. We're looking after these incredibly important historical documents and, and, and precious artefacts. But I think we're also really looking to the future and looking at these developing technologies and developing imaging technologies and seeing how we can integrate them into our study of these texts and literally illuminating, lighting up pages and highlighting texts that's never been seen before. And that's, yeah, that's incredibly exciting to, to witness. And it's also like showing the machinations of the court of King James I when uh, things are being edited and kind of uh, uh, changed and the, the, the official record is being manipulated to protect uh, those who might otherwise be embarrassed. Yes, exactly. It, 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 it provides a real insight because certainly across these, these 10 volumes and the multiple drafts that you witness, you really get a sense of, of, a, of, a, of a text that's sort of ever-changing and that Camden is really going through a, a, a process of this and, and, and he seems to be in consultation with numerous members of the court in the best way to write his text and to appease his sponsor, uh, James himself. And it kind of shows how something that was seen as an objective historical source uh, was never objective at all and was subject to those same constraints and restrictions and uh, biases as anything else. Yeah, Helena, actually, in her research, she likes to refer to this as almost like a, as a work of literature, uh, as as much as it is a historical narrative, and that we have to analyze it in that way, that it's sort of ever-changing, and that, that there's a, it's, it's a, a delicate balance of, of source material and personal insight and, the, and framing of, of the historical narrative. And I'm struck by how excited you are describing the project and I suppose how exciting it is to be uh, uncovering material that no one has has looked at for over 400 years. Yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a very exciting moment when we first, uh, we did the initial tests on the manuscripts to see if we could uh, uh, uncover the text beneath them. Helena had alerted us to the, to the paper notes and the manuscript and we sort of won- started to wonder whether any of the, the, the new technologies at the library could, could help with that. And so we, we collaborated with um, the British Library's imaging team and uh, specifically Eugenio Falcioni, who's a, a senior imaging technician at the library. And we had this moment where we essentially, we realized that transmitted light, the light that has literally passed through an object could be used to reveal the text. And we essentially inserted a, a light sheet, which is just a thin perspex sheet that emits a light source, and we sort of inserted that into the manuscript and laid the page over the light sheet and turned it on and 
suddenly we could see all this, all these layers of text that were completely invisible to the naked eye. And so, yeah, that was a, a, a very exciting moment of, 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 of realization of, 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 of what we could do and, yeah, what the, the, the possibilities were in, in, in the context of, of this project. And if our listeners want to find out more about it or uh, hear or, or even see some of the images, where should they go? Um, so the, the images will be made available in the future. Um, but for any updates, you can uh, consult our Medieval Manuscripts blog uh, and also follow us on, on Twitter and social media platforms on, at BL Medieval. OK, well, my thanks to Callum Coburn, the creator of Medieval Manuscripts at the British Library, uh, who's been working on this Annals project and doing some brilliant work there with the team. Thank you so much, Callum, for joining us. Thank you, Patrick. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Welcome back to Talking History. A new book provides an intimate history of cosmetics and reveals how for centuries women have turned to makeup as a rich source of creativity, community and resistance. And we discovered that the Renaissance was an era obsessed with appearances and beauty culture from the time has left traces that give us a window into an overlooked realm of history, revealing everything from 16th century women's bodies' anxieties to their sophisticated botanical and chemical knowledge. The book is called How to Be a Renaissance Woman, The Untold History of Beauty and Female Creativity. It's published in hardback by Welcome Collection. I'm delighted to welcome the author Jill Burke to the show tonight. Jill, you're very welcome. Thank you. Hello. Can we begin with that idea about anxiety, body anxiety, and women being critical about their, about their appearance? Why was that the case and why has that been the case? Well, a lot of things happened in Renaissance Europe that people m- might be familiar with. So there's a big change in visual culture in that artists start to depict people more realistically. People are, uh, they start to be interested in, in what the exterior of bodies look like. And the nude becomes very important, and particularly the female nude becomes very important in art. And portraiture really starts. And, and the observation of, of nature and naturalism starts. So you have a whole new kind of set of um, ideas and criteria about art. But also with this comes in a new set of ideas or a kind of um, newly fashionable set of ideas about beauty. And of course, in the late 15th century, printing starts as well. So you start to get printed books. So you get this kind of um, massive spread of ideas about classical beauty that are different from the medieval ideal. So there's a lot of this kind of perfect storm where people are starting to analyse people's appearances in, in great detail. And at the same time, medical culture also changes. And people, there starts to be popular medical books, which, which say, you know, you should look at potential brides, this is particularly women who are looked at in this way, um, to check that their characters are suitable for, for getting married. And it was believed that things like, um, you know, curly blonde hair, pale skin and rosy cheeks, and that signified fertility and um, having a nice kind of passive um, uh, character as well for a wife as well. So there's a lot of things that are going on that mean that women were more intently aware of their appearance, also that they wanted to change it uh, more. And do you think this was, you know, the Renaissance era, the 7th, 16th century, where all of these pressures, you know, became greater than ever before? Or do you think there was always pressure on women to, to look as good as they could? Yeah, I think certainly there was always, uh, you know, it's difficult, you know, as a historian to say there was always anything. You're always like, ah, you know, you've got to find evidence for it. Um, the evidence suggests that from an interest in cosmetics, particularly, and cosmetic recipes, um, starts maybe in the late later 13th, 14th century. So you get this in the kind of later Middle Ages, and then this is taken up in print culture. The real difference, I think, is the how diffuse this was in society. So it used to be assumed that it was just wealthy women, just aristocrats who cared about this and who wore makeup. But the research shows that that's just not the case at all, that this was something that was um, important really for much poorer women, just, you know, regular women, working women as well. And you begin with this uh, remarkable book, first published in Venice in 1562, The Ornaments of Ladies, uh, which included more than 1,400 recipes for the beautification of the face, hair and body. So it's it's it shows how there was all of these attempts and all of these recipes for making sure that everything, every aspect of the body was made as, as perfect as possible. Yeah, I mean, I first kind of just stumbled across this book because I was actually interested in, in whether Renaissance women removed their body hair. This is one of the chapters of the book. 
Um, and I thought, oh, there's some body hair removal recipes in here. How interesting. And then I obviously, you know, you do start to read on. And it absolutely amazed me um, because of the way that they talked about women's appearances, the way that they, this physician, uh, Giovanni Marinello is a, a physician, the way he urged women to change their looks. And he says explicitly, you know, you should aim to look like the poets and painters of the day say you should look. Um, and just a massive proliferation of recipes, many of which are recognizable today. So it, it was not so much, there is some color cosmetics in there, like, you know, blusher, for example, or lipstick or foundation. But there's also a lot of recipes for things like moisturizer, um, hair conditioner, deodorant, um, but also things like changing the proportions of your body, how to get thinner, how to get fatter. Um, and he says, you know, if you don't uh, keep yourself looking good, you can't, you can't blame your husband for going off and, and um, finding other women. So there's this, this kind of, uh, there's this, peri- this thing that's happening in the period that feels very recognisable today. So and that was a starting point, and I thought I really have to investigate this further. And you also include some of the recipes yourself, and uh, you encourage the readers then to, to make their own, whether it's a, a rose lip balm or a, or a pine nut hand scrub or whatever. So you can actually uh, recreate some of these uh, beauty treatments from the Renaissance era. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the problems with studying, um, particularly women in this era, is that a lot of them were able to write and so you don't get much of a so particularly for poorer women you often don't get much of a sense of their lives so initially recreating the recipes was a way of just trying to understand their lives you know trying trying to kind of look at this source material in a different way to gain some insight at least into their sensorial lives you know what they were smelling what they were feeling but what was surprising is that they're really nice some of these recipes (laughs) there's this kind of cliche of renaissance makeup as being poisonous or you know disgusting or all these things you know made out of awful ingredients and sometimes that's true and there are recipes for things that you know you just wouldn't try um but a lot of it's really lovely so the rose lip balm is just smells of roses they made it from fresh roses um the fig i don't know how the fig hand wash works but it kind of does work and it makes you your um uh, skin feel much softer after you use it so that was just something Originally, that was fun that I was doing just for my own interest. But then I thought, oh, I could put these recipes in the book and share them with the reader. And maybe they can also have have fun um, and kind of understand that cosmetics aren't just oppressive. So we've talked about the kind of oppressive bit where women have to meet these beauty ideals. But also, this is these were recipes that women shared, that they made together, that they uh, tweaked to their own, um, you know, to their own likings. Um, so it was, it was also... Uh, an area where women really enjoyed it and were able to be creative and, and for poorer women able to make a bit of money because often these cosmetics were sold as well to, or just given as gifts to family members and friends. Now, one thing I hadn't known or hadn't realised, and it does, I think, make a huge impact on, on how people view themselves and think of themselves and, and, and how they're looking, is, of course, the mirror. And yeah. before the Renaissance, there weren't these full-length mirrors. In fact, uh-huh. I think people used polished metal or something so that mm-hmm. they didn't really get a good view of themselves. But in this era, for the first time, they are able to see themselves, the good, the bad, and perhaps the ugly. That's right. And that is also something that, you know, it's, it's one of these innovations that um, people don't really know about. We're so familiar to seeing, seeing ourselves in a full-length mirror. It's, it's a really normal, um, you know, daily occurrence for, for most of us. Um, but in the Renaissance, mirrors um, from the Middle Ages were, were small and were rounded. So they were convex. And if you look at yourself in a convex mirror, you get quite a different view of your face because they don't uh, reflect evenly. And these full-length mirrors were developed in the later 15th century in Germany and then in Venice, and Venice became a really important centre for them. And people could see themselves, uh, you know, properly, uh, properly reflected, but they could see their bodies for the first time as well. So although it's difficult to say exactly what that impact is, you know, people don't write it down necessarily, of this is what I thought when I saw myself in a full, uh, full-length mirror, there's certainly a much more self-consciousness about the body 
um, because you can see it like other people are seeing it from the outside for the first time. And did ideas of beauty and ideals of beauty change? Because I sometimes think that if uh, women from the 21st century were to go back in time to the 16th century, you know, someone who's considered beautiful in our era, you know, might be the, the exact opposite of what was considered attractive back then. Yeah, I mean, it, there's there's that there are shifts. Um, certainly in the in the 16th century, because of the impact of um, the rediscovery of classical antiquity, so things like um, ancient sculptures of Venus get very popular, and women start to be encouraged to mimic that look, which is uh, quite a to our eyes might seem a little bit plump, um, you know, to have uh, quite an hourglass figure. Uh, whereas in the Middle Ages, um, pear shapes were much more fashionable. Um, youth was always something. Something's the same, you know. Like youth is always popular, and and health, um, people having clear skin and things. But there's such an emphasis in the Renaissance on on having golden blonde hair um, and on having a plumpness. So things like double chins are very fashionable, for example. Um, so so nowadays, you know, there is a different aesthetic, but. And, and fashions, you know, do change in, in the way that people's bodies and faces look as well as, you know, how, how fashions and clothes uh, change as well. You have a chapter on witch hunts, which looks at the interesting connections between witchcraft and cosmetics and mm-hmm. the obsession that uh, witch hunters and others seem to have with bodily body hair as well. And that yeah. uh, this was seen as, you know, something arcane and dangerous that had to be examined mm-hmm. and perhaps uh, shaved off as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the body hair question is really interesting. Um, it seems, uh, you know, quite a strange thing to get involved in as a as a researcher. But um, actually, attitudes to body hair are, are very deeply enmeshed in in cultural ideas. Um, so what was I found out really was that Mediterranean cultures are increasingly, and I'm, I'm talking about Italy and Spain and and France. Um, women were tended to remove their body hair more and more as the 16th century went on, and this is something that was increasingly expected, that women would have little uh, or no body hair. Whereas in Northern Europe, uh, Germany particularly, body hair removal was associated very closely with witchcraft. And there's a big obsession with body hair and its removal in the 16th century in Germany. Um, and the idea was that um, witches could hide amulets and charms in their body hair that could either protect them from um, being um, from persecution or harm the people people around them. And it's interesting to see, and, and all, I suppose this is the theme throughout the book, how closely cosmetics and body, you know, changing one's body, removing hair, whatever, can be intertwined with quite violent misogyny. Um, so, so there's this body hair removal is never just a personal. Uh, although it feels like a personal choice, that personal choice is, is very intertwined with ideas about what femininity should be and the kind of um, anxieties about what femininity out of control uh, could could indicate. What, what difference did it make when you had women artists, artisans, business women, and so on? That did they change how images of beauty were being presented, or were they uh, caught up in the same kinds of pressures? A little bit of both. Um, so um, you get a lot of, uh, you know, some women writers particularly saying, look, you know, this obsession with women's beauty is doing us no good at all. So you get the first um, women um, just arguing that men should not be so superficial and that you should understand that beauty is only skin deep. Even in the 15th century, you get um, humanists like Lara Chirata saying that women are just wasting their time on looking at and um, on, on thinking about what they look like all the time. But at the same time, a lot of women, um, particularly poor, you know, women from less elevated backgrounds and when they had to make a living, were really interested in makeup and felt very much bound up in this whole idea of having to keep up appearances. This is the age of courtesan culture, the 16th uh, century in Italy. And so courtesans, their appearances mattered massively and they were often from poorer um, backgrounds almost always from poorer backgrounds but being beautiful and also being talented being able to write being able to sing being able to compose was a way of them getting ahead um, in society and actually you know earning some money of their own because you know women when they did work were paid much less than men and were often very dependent on their husbands uh, to make a living but even courtesans had this mixed 
relationship with beauty. And also there seems to be a real prudishness when it came to the the, the naked body, especially below the waist, that people didn't want to be seen and uh, things were very much covered up and hidden. Yeah, I mean, there is this um, discussion uh, in some of the literature about how if uh, women had a medical issue um, in in their genitalia, they'd rather die than let a doctor see them. Um, uh, But so there is this kind of... uh, idea that it was natural for women to want to cover themselves up all the time um and how much this played out is difficult to say i mean people did uh, there there were for example life models did did uh female life models did take their clothes off for for male artists and for female artists as well so not all women you know many women could be persuaded to um strip if necessary for, for the sake of art and you know for if if they were given some money for it as well. You also have a chapter on white face and there was a huge interest mm. in these uh, skin whitening practices mm. and, uh, and and what was that connected to? Well, a few things. Um, this period in, um, that I'm talking about, the, the later 15th and 16th century, was a period of massive European expansion into the rest of the world. And um, skin colour increasingly became a marker of, um, you know, European, the difference between Europeans and other people. Um, in Italy, there was a very big fashion for um, black servants, um, particularly black children as being servants, um, for aristocratic ladies. So there's this distinction between the pale skin of the aristocratic lady and the dark skin of the of the servant. These servants were often kind of captured as slaves um, from the Portuguese slave trade and then taken into Italy. So it's a really kind of appalling story. Um, but of course, white skin was also a token of not being outside very much, so not working outside. It, it was a token of, of women um, being wealthy and uh, kind of appropriately delicate. Men were said to have darker skin than women as well. Um, so there's a kind of really troubling story of um, skin whitening um, in this period. And the ingredients in skin whitening were often uh, quite toxic as well. Um, and women knew this, but they used them anyway. So um, things like mercury, for example, would um, um, obviously have health problems, but also think about um, blackening of teeth and, and things like that. But that was commonly used as a skin whitening ingredient and still is in use as a skin whitening ingredient in some places today. And what about hair colour? Because there seems to be different kind of uh, mythologies around uh, what was the ideal hair colour and uh, Mm. dark hair was good for certain things, but strawberry blondes was perhaps the ideal for uh, absolute beauty and so on. That that also seemed to be a a really significant thing. Yeah, strawberry blonde was the colour to have. Um, And there's so many recipes for hair bleach, Um, you know, um, hundreds of recipes left over for hair bleach. Um, the idea is that hair is a marker of your internal um, balance of humours. So um, women were believed to have wetter and um, colder humours than men. And this, these produced, naturally produced, uh, lighter hair colour um, and um, hair colour that was uh, straighter. If you had dark hair as a woman or um, particularly dark curly hair, they believed that you were likely to be argumentative and possibly infertile. Um, and they, they, you know, there's this um, book by a Spanish physician called Juan Huarte, and he said, you know, you mustn't marry the women with dark hair because they will argue with you and drive you crazy. So, Jill, a final question then is, when you look back on, I suppose, cosmetics, how to be a Renaissance woman, the, the different views of beauty, what's the thing that maybe shocked you the most in your research? This might sound ridiculous, but what shocked me the most was how brilliant these women were. I think, really, I didn't even understand it myself. I think I had quite a patronising attitude to, to women in the past. And I was thinking, you know, they just put up with all this misogyny and all this sexism and, you know, and I agreed with the, the kind of stereotypes that they were just plastering themselves with all this noxious material. And then I actually found out about them and found out how much women talked about beauty, how much they said interesting and intelligent and complex things about it. And, um, you know, how I felt in the end that I was learning from them and was learning from the sources and learning from their resilience and ingenuity and I suppose uh, you know although it's shameful almost to say um, that was that was 
the most surprising thing for me. Okay, well, it's a brilliant new study and it has all of those recipes at the back as well. So people can do their own experimenting and have lots of fun as well. The book is called How to Be a Renaissance Woman, The Untold History of Beauty and Female Creativity. It's published in hardback by Profile Books and Welcome Collection. The author is Jill Burke. And Jill, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, it's a pleasure. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Welcome back to Talking History. It took a century for the Royal Hibernian Academy to elect its first woman artist and another century before the first woman president was elected. A new exhibition, It Took a Century, Women Artists and the RHA showcases women's membership of the Royal Hibernian Academy of Arts from the election of Sarah Purser in 1923 to its first woman president, Dr. Abigail O'Brien in 2018. And to discuss the exhibition, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Caroline Campbell, the new director of the National Gallery of Ireland. Caroline, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm very happy to be on the show. I've enjoyed listening to it. So it's lovely to be here in the hot seat, as it were, as well. And congratulations to you, because you're also a trailblazer, because you're the first woman director of the National Gallery of Ireland. I am indeed. And I'm incredibly honoured to have this role, because I've been visiting the gallery since I was a teenager. It's a place that's always been very close to my heart. And I've always loved the way the gallery is so open, that you can just walk in off Merrion Square or Clare Street, and there you are, with one of the greatest collections of paintings in the world and the only collection actually anywhere in the world where you can see Irish art and international art together at the highest quality. And I know that you're passionate about the idea that art is for everyone, that there are things that uh, everyone can enjoy, that it is all around us and that it shouldn't be just seen as for the, for the elite or for uh, those who are educated in it. Art has never been for the elite. Art is part of our lives and the great thing about institutions like the National Gallery, which was founded in 1854. They were f- it was founded so that art could be for everybody, that there was no barrier. This was not something for a drawing room. It was something for everyone to see and visit. And that's really why I do the job I do and work in the, in, in the area that, that I am, because I feel that's so fundamentally important. So tell us about this new exhibition and tell us about the Royal Hibernian Academy of Arts, because it might be something that not all of our listeners might be aware of. So the Royal Hibernian Academy of Arts is a body of artists. It was founded, as you've said, in 1823. So it's celebrating its bicentenary this year. And it's an organisation of artists for artists. It's run by artists. Its current president is Abigail O'Brien. And it's in beautiful buildings not too far from here on Eli Place. Um, And it's an elected academy. So the artists elect their own members. Um, And it's the most important artistic academy in Ireland. And one of the most important in these islands. So why did it take a century then? Why why is there that gap of, you know, a hundred years before Sarah Purser is elected in 1923? Well, I think we have to remember the wider context of Irish society, in fact, European society at that time. If you look back to the 1820s, this was a period where, of course, women were not really doing anything that was outside the private sphere. Well, they were, but if they did, they had to negotiate that very, very carefully. And there was a feeling in many quarters in the early 19th century, as indeed there had been for centuries, that women's involvement in creative work was was not something that they were supposed to do. Women's role was one that was in the home, it was domestic. Now we both know as historians that there have been many women throughout time who've subverted that, but that was the general consensus. Women's education only develops really in the course of the 19th century. I'm proud to have gone to one of the very first schools for girls founded in these islands in 1859. Um, but really, that's, I think that's the context for this. And think about how women's lives have changed actually in the last 100 years since 1923 when Sarah Purser was elected to the Academy. Um, women were just getting opportunities to vote. You know, the marriage bar then came in in the 30s. Women's lives have been under a great deal of public difficulties for a long time. And so in that way, I think it's no surprise that it took that length of time. In fact, it took longer in some other places. So in a way, you get a great sense about the history of of Ireland and you get a sense of uh, attitudes to women as well through the exhibition because you see how how, you know, there were all these obstacles for for women, including women artists. There were extraordinary obstacles. And what's very wonderful about the exhibition when you see it is that there are works by nearly 60 artists, um, one by each of the female members of the Royal Hibernian Academy, living and dead. And you 
see strong artistic personalities. The, the idea of women, if they painted, according to the art theoreticians of the Renaissance and beyond, Giorgio Vasari particularly, was that women's work was on a small scale. Women could only make landscapes or, well, really they could make flower paintings or they could do things that were decorative. When you see this exhibition, you see that this is not the case at all. There are women working in every media, women working on a very large scale, on a very small scale. You get the diversity of artistic practice in the last 100 years in Ireland as well in this exhibition. So tell us about uh, the first woman member then, uh, Sarah Purser, because, you know, she very distinguished artist, of, of, you know, I think a much loved artist. Mm. I think she was 75 by the time she became a member. Sarah Purser was a well-established artist by the time she became a member. In fact, she became an honorary member of the RHA in the 1890s. Um, she was born in 1848. Um, she trained as an artist in Paris. I was just looking before I came up here at her wonderful little painting of a friend of hers um, in, the, in the gallery, a painting of a woman twirling a sort of little toy. Um, she was a painter who really worked with the generation of artists who were famous in France in the 1870s and 80s. Um, Degas, Manet, their successors. I don't think she knew, she knew Degas personally, we think, um, but she was a fantastically um, talented painter. Um, and she was also somebody who was very involved in a more social and um, more collegial context. She also established this great stained glass workshop in Ireland and her Gloina, um, which um, operated well into the middle of the 20th century. Um, and the painting that we have in the exhibition by her is a very pensive portrait of her friend Jack Yates. I think it really shows Sarah Purser's ability as a portraitist. This is Jack Yates not looking like a famous artist, but looking as somebody who's really very unsure of himself. And they were fairly near contemporaries and they knew each other pretty well. It's a, it's a, it's a very interesting and very private portrait. And what about some of the other artists then? There's uh, Evie Hone, for example, is yes. included in it. Evie Hone is such a wonderful figure, isn't she? I mean, she came, of course, from that family with strong artistic connections. She also trained in London and in Paris. In Paris, she was very much associated with the Cubist artists Lotte and um, Glaze. And she and her friend, um, Mani Jellick, came back to Ireland in the 1920s, painting in this way, which was thought to be totally scandalous, actually, in the 1920s. Um, she continued to have a career um, as, a, as a painter, but predominantly as a stained glass artist. I mean, sadly, her greatest work as a stained glass artist is in Eaton Chapel. Not sad that it is Eaton Chapel, but sad for us that we can't see it as easily as we might do as if we were in, in, in Ireland. But I've always loved her work because I grew up worshipping in a small church in South Belfast where we had a window of Evie Hones there. So she's always someone who who's meant a lot personally to me. I love the way she manages to change that abstraction into a more painterly form in glass. And really her glass responds to the light and to the environment around her. She was also ill for most of her life. She was a semi-invalid. And it's extraordinary to see how she worked despite despite this great um, issue that she had. And a lovely self-portrait of Imogen Stewart. A really amazing self-portrait of Imogen Stewart, who is the oldest living artist in the in the exhibition. Imogen Stewart, of course, was born in Berlin um, in the late 1920s. Um, she was the father of one of the most celebrated art critics of the time, Bruno Werner. Um, she trained in Germany. Um, she trained with a sculptor who was particularly interested in the connection between the past and the present, um, looking at German um, medieval sculpture as well as the expressionist work of their own time. And that's something you very much see in her work and also her pride in whatever she does in being a maker. She's somebody who's very, very engaged with the materiality of her production, be it in wood or stone or other media. And the self-portrait that she made is at the beginning of the exhibition as you go in from the showroom in the middle of the room. It's a very powerful work. And Gary Hines is someone who would probably be better known as a theatre director and the co-founder of the Druid Theatre, but also an artist in her own right. And uh, she's included. In well, it. she's included indeed in a wonderful sculpture by um, by Vera Kluta. Um, and again, it has that real sense of personality and drive. It's a it's a sculpture that takes quite a traditional form. Um, so it's on a plinth, but she's wearing a cardigan. Um, you know, it's of different colours. There's a real sense of 
personality. She seems to be stepping over the plinth and, and, and out into, into our space. It's one of the most popular works, incidentally, in the gallery's National Portrait Collection. We always get complaints when it's off display. Um, talk to me about how the exhibition is being presented because you're making use of Room 21 and I don't think that's usually used for exhibitions. So Room 21, for those who don't visit the gallery and don't speak room number, um, is the room just at the end of the showroom on the main, on the on the ground floor of the gallery. So it's coming in from one of our grandest 19th century interiors. And it's a space where we have, in recent years, mainly shown our 18th and early 19th century Irish collection. So it is a statement to be doing this exhibition here and also to be doing it as a as a, as a free exhibition that people can enter as they view the rest of the collection. Um, and we and the Royal Hibernian Academy felt this was very important that this exhibition would have a real presence in the gallery as part of the RHA's bicentenary celebrations because the two organisations are very closely connected. Um, when the National Gallery was founded in 1854, um, RHA members are have been constituted since then as members of our board. So we have three RHA members at the moment who sit on our board, including Abigail O'Brien, the president. So suppose so about the election of Abigail then, in, I think it was 2018. Was that a really significant breakthrough then when, when she was elected the first president? First well, woman president. I'm not a member of the academy, but yes, I, I, I it, it was a, a, a great, uh, a great moment. Abigail is, of course, a very, very established and very talented artist, and um, the RHA has, in recent years, been really striving towards gender equality, and they've almost reached that point. Um, and because this is an elected academy, and once you're elected, you are a member until you're dead. There's that wonderful continuity as well, too. So change has happened in that environment quite. Fast. So all different kinds of artworks. And I think you're using different kinds of media as well to maybe tell the stories of these remarkable artists. We are. And also telling the stories of artists who may not be so well known, some of which really are, are not familiar. I mean, one artist who I find very interesting finding more about is a woman called Kathleen Trousdale, um, who was a very, very celebrated 19th century public sculptor. Um, she particularly specialised in images of clerics in public Public monuments, you see them all over the, these islands. Um, she's particularly well known in County Armagh for her last post in Purdy. Um, but she got into carving apparently by watching as a mason carving her grandmother's tombstone as when she was a child at about the age of ten. And she's a we have a, a bust of hers um, of a doctor in the in the exhibition. But she's someone whose whose story has really completely gone. She was blind. Um, she ended up being blind. She was deaf. She was born in the mid-1860s and died in the late 1950s. A really substantial career, but somebody whose story has not really yet been much told. And there are many figures like that in the exhibition. And do you think there are some of the artists and some of the artworks that would be much better known if they had been created by a man, that they would have got the praise and the recognition and the attention? Well, that's a very, very good question. I mean, there's no doubt that um, women's artistic careers were, until probably the last 40 or 50 years, even in art schools, they were often talking to women of that generation. They say, well, we weren't necessarily encouraged to think we would we would have a career ourselves. We, they were encouraged much more to go into teaching rather than to actually make make work. Um, so, yes, I think that, that is definitely the case. And you might remember, Patrick, that in the late 1980s, there was a really pioneering exhibition um, that the National Gallery of Ireland, the Hugh Lane and the Douglas Hyde Gallery worked on together, which was presenting 200 years of women artists. Um, it was actually one of the first exhibitions of its kind on such a scale anywhere in the world. Um, but still, you know, that length of time on, Patrick Murphy and I were discussing, there is still a lot of the artists in that exhibition whose stories we need to tell. People like Grace Henry, for instance, wonderful, wonderful painter, represented in our show, really just beginning to become known. Um, and also Hilda Van Stockham, Evie Hone's great friend, um, who portray, has her portrait in the exhibition, a Dutch painter, a Dutch writer, um, who again, you know, again, it was completely unknown to me before working, being involved in this show. So what do you think the, will happen? What do you think the story will be over the next century? 
Well, I hope the story will be is that um, galleries like like mine and others, which are really committed to diversifying the art we show, will be telling more of these stories. We, for instance, are having um, an, a, an exhibition devoted to Sarah Purser, which is going to open later this autumn. It's quite a small exhibition, but it will be important in making her mark and showing her not just as somebody who was involved in all sorts of art movements, but a really very, very, very talented and extraordinary painter. And so I think um, it's very important to keep on doing exhibitions and research projects of this kind, like the Lavinia Fontana show we have on at the NGI until the end of August. That's an exhibition, but that will continue in terms of its research. My colleague Aoife Brady, who I know has been on here, um, is working now thinking about Fontana's chronology insofar as it relates to her, her life and her biological clock. You know, what does it mean to women to work when you're having, as in Fontana's case, 11 live births and many pregnancies how do you fit that into how you how you think about your practice and your studio so the exhibition is running until the 22nd of October. Admission is free when people uh, come. They can also purchase, if they want, uh, uh, a guide, uh, an illustrated publication with all of the, the details and, uh, uh, and the images. And uh, it's something that I think is for everyone because it shows the power of art and it also shows the power of art despite the pressures that society may impose on on artists. I think it's a very inspiring exhibition and we had a special event for to which we invited most of the, all the artists who are living involved and the atmosphere there was 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 quite electric. But I think what I would also say is that an exhibition is a celebration but it's also a statement that there is more to do in this area as well. It's certainly not the end. Now, you also have a book coming out later this year called The Power of Art. So I think we're going to have to bring you back for that. But <laughs> could you give us like a, a preview maybe of the types of things you're exploring in the book? Well, the book is intended for a general audience, people who are interested in the past and the present. Um, and what I really wanted to think about is how art is really embedded in our lives. It is when you visit a gallery, but it's everywhere around us, in the ceramics we pick up, um, in the buildings we live in in the streets we walked on and I wanted to look at 15 cities at different moments in the in in world history cities that I've loved because I've studied them or I've been there um, and to think about the difference the variety and also the continuities of art will be I was very much inspired actually by reading um, Ernst Gombrich's story of art which I first encountered as a teenager and people often criticize that book as being very traditional it is very much a book of its time but it was also a book written by someone who had lived through Nazi persecution and was a huge optimist. And I think I share that optimism too. Okay, well, we'd be delighted to bring you back to talk about that. And I think your optimism and your passion definitely uh, come through. So I think there's exciting times ahead for the National Gallery. Well, I certainly hope so. And it's lovely to be with you here. Well, my thanks to Dr. Caroline Campbell, the Director of the National Gallery of Ireland. The exhibition is called It Took a Century, Women Artists and the RHA. It is open at the moment. It is running until October uh, this year and I think comes uh, very highly recommended. Well, that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer, Marisa Sullivan, and to Peter Malloy on sound. We've got more debate and discussion next week, so hope you can join us then. We've been Talking History. Good night.